what does great content look like? Now, some would say that it's short. Others might say it's educational and entertaining at the same time. Now, Dr. Fia DeSetto, she has led content strategy and marketing at companies like Hotjar, ActiveCampaign, Postmark, and now at Float. And she had to answer this question. She wanted to make sure that the content quality remained high across content writers, freelancers, creators that her team worked with. That's where Fio's easy framework, a set of four content principles that she uses to gauge the quality of a piece of content. Today, she goes into detail into this framework. In this Marketing Pops episode, you learn first, the four principles in Fio's easy framework. Second, common mistakes that Fio sees in writers and freelancers and content marketers. Third, examples of great high quality content. And four, a career power-up that's helped accelerate Fio's career. Now, before I get started, I created a free power-up cheat sheet that you can use and download and apply Fio's easy framework to your content right now. You can find that at marketingpowerups.com or you can find the link in the show notes and the description below. Are you ready? Let's go. Marketing power-ups. Ready? Go! Here's your host, Bradley John. Well, we finally glad to have you on the show. Uh, I've been a big fan of your content. I'm a newsletter subscriber of content folks. I'm going to add it to the link. I'm going to tell people, hey, you know, subscribe to this newsletter. If you're a content marketer, people would love it. Uh, and now you've had like a, over a decade of experience in branding content editor and marketer working for companies like Hotjar and Postmark. I'm sure you've seen like common mistakes and you've written about it probably in your your newsletter and things that just make your blood boil. <laughs> Are there ones specifically that you've seen? Yes, yeah, and not just mistakes I've seen, it's also mistakes I've made. So a double boiling of the blood there. Um, I think there are two. Um, one is a tactical mistake and... The other one is a bit more of about the overall approach. So I'm going to tell you about both. But I will say I come from B2B, tech, software. So I think this applies across other industries as well. But just this is the lens through which we're having this conversation. So the tactical mistake is that not enough content marketers talk to the customers and audiences we're creating content for. Um, by which I mean literally being on a Zoom call and talking to the people who buy the product or service that we offer. And we're all overwhelmed. There is a lot of stuff to do. There is so much going on and it's just so much easier not to. But I think, um, I don't know if this is also your experience, but when you work at a company, you kind of live inside of a bubble and your vision becomes distorted. And so you start assuming that your work will be met with the same interest and enthusiasm that you put into it and it won't so what to you may have been a week of like intense work and back and forth with your team and contributors and designers to build this beautiful experience it's maybe somebody else's five minutes while they you know scroll through linkedin or commute or whatever and i think the more you are removed from customers the more you stay inside this bubble the more it's easy to forget the, the, the human situations uh, where your content gets seen and used. And also, I think there is a difference between um, creating content for sort of an abstract audience or an idea of an audience versus being on a call for 25 minutes with your customer, let's call her, I don't know, Samira, 
who tells you all the ways in which she was struggling before finding your product and all the jobs that she couldn't do and now she can. Because suddenly you're invested, you know, and there is a face and there is a voice that you can think about when you're creating something. So there is a connection and that wasn't there before. So yes, this is a, to sum up, the tactical mistake is not talking to customers. And then on a more high level note, I think not enough content marketers think like business owners. So we focus on craft and we deliver competently like tacticians. Um, but I don't think we spend anywhere near enough time thinking about how the content we produce will solve a business challenge or you know, impact the business moving forward. And also, we also don't communicate this information to, every, to everybody else's stakeholders in the company so that people are aware of the value we bring and the potential collaborations you know, we, and partnerships we can build. Um, I think this, you know, this may be my controversial opinion. I don't know, but uh, okay, hot take. Um, it's. I think it comes because I've grown up as a marketer on demand generation teams. Uh, we're very in tune with the ROI of, of our work. So I'm thinking about content in relation to the business, and also because I am a small business owner. I own my side projects and you know side business as a consultant. So. I guess I'm forever borrowing this kind of business owner hat mentality where I'm like, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, how are these things going to help me or not get to my own goals type thing? So yes, long story short, to sum up, talk to your customers and start thinking like a business, a business owner and you'll be a better marketer and you'll do better work as well. Mm. And I feel like those things might be like tied to each other really well. We're like talking to the customers, help you figure out how your content can have the customer impact, but also business impact Because you know, I'm guessing there is like a tie between the two of them, would you say? For sure, for sure. And also when you get to hear how, hopefully when you get to hear how your content has either helped these people learn about the company or learn how to use the product, then you can see like a direct line of success between what you do and, you know, how that's impacting the business. Um, and then you, I don't know, I think you kind of automatically just want to do more because you can see your contribution. And that's, I think that's exciting. You, you know that your, your, your work makes sense and is also helping people, which I think is great. I mean, I think uh, I, I like to say that when I rule the world of content marketing, I'll, I'll make customer interviews mandatory for everybody because <laughs> that's that's how it should be. Yeah, it builds that empathy and makes your content and writing more real. You can use the words, their exact words and problems, right, in the piece of content that you have. That you know. Oh, that's of, that's also. 100% steal from what they're saying. <laughs> take take their words. I mean, give credit, obviously. But, you know, the way somebody describes your products as they use it, as they're in the weeds, is better than what you can come up with on your own in your no, no, little room without having ever experienced the product yourself. So there's all sorts of benefits, really, to, mm. to that. I know we're going to be talking about the easy content framework that you have. One part of it is around being an expert because I feel like how do you, you actually wrote another post? I'm going to link 
in in the description around how to interview experts, and that that could mm. also apply to customers. And I guess my 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 question around this is how like what is your approach? Do you have a more structured approach if you want? You're suggesting content folks talk to customers. Do you have like uh, you know some questions that you like asking or a specific maybe not a question but like a flow or like what are you trying to dig into specifically? you're talking to customers and interviewing them of course i mean i think the 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 marketer answer to your question is it depends on what you're trying to do i think uh that that article or the newsletter you were talking about comes from my understanding of the fact that um the the ideal way to create content that is you know helpful and convincing and good really about anything is to match um topical expertise on one end, or sorry, topical complexity on one end with um, subject matter expertise. But we as content marketers, we often find ourselves in a situation where the topic is complex and we don't have a matching level of expertise. And if we just try to force our way into it, we might not have excellent results. So to give an example, I worked for Postmark, you mentioned before, this is an email delivery service. And prior to getting to Postmark, I had never in my life even wondered how emails get delivered. Like to me, it's just a thing like you click, the email gets delivered, the end. And there is so much more to it than that, obviously, but I couldn't possibly plan or execute convincing content around email deliverability on my own and never mind convince other people to use our product after reading it. So one thing I could do, and I obviously did, was piece information together, um, you know, through independent research and Googling, et cetera, but so can anybody else. And this is where actually the distinctive element in the work comes from talking to experts who can share, you know, verifiable information and tangible data point and even unique and controversial opinions and and you can use them and you can use interview transcripts as your foundations um so it doesn't mean that you have to become the expert um but you have to learn how to leverage other people's expertise and so if you're if you're writing about a topic you can ask questions such as you know um how would you define this topic for a beginner and how do you talk about this topic to your peers, because there may be a difference. What is something that non-experts believe about this topic and they're wrong about? Um, you know, what's the most common reason people struggle with this topic? And then if you're talking about the product, you can ask other types of questions like, you know, what problems are you facing when you first looked for the product? Um, what objections did you have? How's your life changed since using it? What can you do now that you couldn't before? And what would you do if you couldn't use the product anymore? So, you know, it's, it's, it's different kinds of questions um, and you can balance them and That's deploy cool. them strategically depending on what it is that you're trying to create, yeah. I guess. That makes sense. What I'm hearing here is I just wanted to recap for people who are tuning in. There's the subject matter experts who you want to be knowing. I love it, like hot takes. <laughs> what are some things that you know that, that people know that actually is wrong or like, you know, what are some things I love the, how would you explain this to a beginner? I think that's like, there's a subreddit called explain it. Like it's like I'm five where like you try <laughs> to explain the concept to a five-year-old, which might not make sense if it's SEO or something technical like AI, but at least it gets them thinking about that. But also there's the other product experts, which could apply to customers. Where like, you know, tell me what 
life look like before the product and how did it help you? How did it change your life? So that and then weaving that into your content is super important because that makes your content from like mediocre to great when you add all of that other stuff, information in content essentially. Is, is what I mean. It also makes your content more unique and therefore yeah. harder to copy because yeah. especially if you have you know, in-house experts like I had at Postmark, these deliverability folks who'd been in, in the industry for decades at this point, they sure had plenty of opinions and they were happy to share them. And, you know, they had, as you said, hot takes and that made their content different because if you wanted to hear, you know, the truth about some pet peeves about email, you knew where to go because, you know, and these people knew what they were doing. Yeah. Obviously, they'd been doing it for years. Mm. So they were a trusted voice more so than if it was me trying to make some sort of argument about the pros and cons of me. What do I know about it? I don't know. I was just a bridge in between the expert and the audience. And I think sometimes your role as a content person is just to be, again, the bridge that puts in touch the folks who have the real knowledge with the folks who are looking for it. Before I continue, I want to thank the sponsor for this episode, 42 Agency. Now, when you're in scale-up growth mode and you have to hit your KPIs, the pressure is on to deliver demos and signups, and it's a lot to handle. There's demand gen, email sequences, RevOps, and more. And that's where 42 Agency, founded by my good friend Camille Rexton, can help you. They're a strategic partner that's helped B2B SaaS companies like ProfitWall, Teamwork, Sprout Social, and HubDoc to build a predictable revenue engine. If you're looking for performance experts and creatives to solve your marketing growth problems today and help you build the foundation for the future, look no further. Visit 42agency.com to talk to a strategist right now to learn how you can build a high efficiency revenue engine. Thank you also to the sponsor for this episode, Riverside.fm. Riverside.fm is my go-to video podcast recording tool. This whole show is recorded on it. What I love about it is that it's almost like being in a virtual studio, which makes it possible to record and edit at the highest quality possible. Riverside.fm also records locally for myself and my guests. So if anyone has unstable internet connection, I can still get studio quality audio and video recording. And now with their AI engine, I can accurately transcribe my recordings as well as get vertical videos for Instagram Reels, TikTok, and YouTube Shorts automatically using the new feature called Magic Clips. Don't take my word for it. You can go to Riverside.fm right now to try it out for free or find the link in the show note and description. Anyway, let's get back to our episode. This is a really good point. Like your content can become a defensible moat where people think about like, you know, what is one of your... What is something that you can create that other people it would be find it hard to copy? And adding all this stuff just makes it it's you know it's hard to if they do copy it. Hopefully they they attribute back to your content and give you a backlink. <laughs> but that's not always the case, right? But like it's hard to quote like somebody who you interviewed with and like not do that. Love that. I think this is yeah, starting to. It's hard uh, to. Yeah. Sorry, and I was gonna say it's hard to copy somebody's opinions i mean you know everybody can plagiarize everybody else we all know but you know it's it's a little bit harder i think mm. and also makes your content stand out because mm. um, as i said before like everybody technically everybody can just do the same research that i did and write the same thing i did just using sources that you find on google or existing content or you know watching youtube videos etc whatever so what are you adding in that is different from everybody else, what is uniquely yours. And I think mm. 
actually sneakily am talking about the easy framework right now. Yes, aren't I? <laughs> I was going to say that. I just said uniquely yours. So there you go. <laughs> let's let's talk about that. Um, how did this easy framework come about? And can you like go through just the five principles uh, bare high level yeah. so that we can dig into each one? Of course. So the easy framework is a set of principles that I introduced at Hotjar. And the easy is a very convenient acronym. It stands for, the E stands for expert, the A stands for actionable, the S for simple, and the Y for yours. So expert, actionable, simple, and yours. And uh, I'm a big fan of frameworks and processes and templates and anything that really helps create alignment. So this came out of a need to align um, myself and my team on the kind of content must-haves versus nice-to-haves. Um, have a set of principles that we could hold one another accountable to and also help us edit or give feedback to other people's work. So instead of, you know, giving nebulous feedback, we could say this piece is great, but it's not yet actionable enough. So can you work on it? Or this piece lacks some expertise. Can you mm -hmm. figure out a way to, to bring that in? And so, yeah, I came out with, with, with this and, um, I've used it at Hotjar and I've, I've kept using it since because frankly, just, I think it's just really a clear path to yeah. good content. I totally, I totally agree. I love how easy it is. Understand. Try to add a pun in there, <laughs> <laughs> but we've already talked about the expert piece. What, how do you, so let's talk about actionable. Like what are some ways that you can make uh, content? marketers and marketers in general can make their content more actionable. Yeah. I think um, I personally believe that your content should have a high level of utility. So mm. it helps your audience do something that's important to them. I think our jobs is to never let people, never leave people asking themselves, okay, but what does this mean and how do I actually do this? Because, I mean, I think we've all seen the content that is just vaguely telling you to do something and then you're completely left on your own when it comes mm. to how to actually do the thing that the content is talking about. It's true. Um, so, and I think this also pairs with the fact that I, I try to practice what I call product-led content. AKA, I try to, to have an approach whereby the content I create um, kind of hinges around the product. So the product is part of the story and making the piece actionable sometimes simply means showcasing your product in action, showing sense. people, <clears throat> excuse me, something went very wrong. Mm. So. <clears throat> Let's go back. Um, I'll just start back to the point where I was talking oh, about product-led content. Yeah. I'm sorry about That's this. Totally, no problem. No need to apologize. We are not like... <laughs> Something went very wrong in my throat. <clears> throat. Oh, no. Okay, I'll try again. Mm. Anyway, um, I practice... I have an approach to content that I call product-led content. Um whereby I like to make the product part of the story, part of the content that I'm creating. And sometimes what that means is 
showing the product in action, showing how a feature works, showing how you can use it to do something that we've just talked about. And that's, um, you know, and that's a way to make it actionable. Um, you can add a sort of how to get started or an equivalent box in the flow of your content and use it to just direct people to the specific actions that they need to take next. Um, it, it doesn't mean that you need to explain like how everything gets done because like you don't want to go yeah. into a million tangents, but if you just signpost the next right step or just give some instructions and some some ways to help people do something or get started with something they came to you for, uh, I think that's the that gives a high level of utility that people appreciate as opposed to just telling them something needs to happen and then giving them absolutely no idea of how that works or what they should do. So then how do they know you're, you're the expert, hence the first part of the framework, you're the expert. So you don't just tell them what the thing is. You also tell them how to make it happen or how to get it done. Mm. And it's essentially answering your question. What's next? Sure. You educated me. Like here, you gave me some examples of like, you know, what's different about the world, what's a new thing to do. And then usually the reader's mind is like, okay, what's next? How do I apply this? And you're really answering that. And it's a great way to weave in your content, like you meant your your product, like you mentioned, where what's next is like sign up for free. <laughs> or what's next could be, you know, download this template. Or so like you're really answering that question, what's next is what makes it more actionable. Yeah, and you know, it's it's not even just about the written word. Sometimes like a strategically placed screenshot with an arrow that says, you know, do this. <laughs> yeah. Um, it can make a lot of difference in helping people understand when, where, or how to take action. So for example, this um this is pretty much how I approached content at Hotjar throughout my my tenure there. Um we would just take screenshots of the dashboard or of a particular product and, you know, just point to the thing we were talking about. Like, this is how you start. If you're using Hotjar, just go here, click there, and this is how it works. And then we just kept talking about, you know, whatever whatever topic we're, we were talking about. But I think it just, yeah, a, a high level of actionability, I, it's, it's a good thing in my book. That's really, uh, really great example. This is just a simple arrow. Oh, uh, yeah, that that makes sense. Sometimes I'm laughing because that's like, all it takes. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I'm laughing because uh, I was I've been looking at YouTube thumbnails and like that arrow and pointing at something interesting like adds <laughs> a lot of click through and it just increases the the curiosity of people to to, to act on something. So that's a great example with that there. Uh, the the next part to this framework is around making it more simple. And you actually gave a warning yes. that this is the hardest element to this framework to pull off because it can get very, uh, it's easy to make things complicated <laughs> or complex. It is. Uh, I think, you know, we, we know from working in content that uh, creating tightly written and deeply considered content is really freaking hard. Mm -hmm. And... <laughs> Anybody who works as an editor or with an editor will know, you know, there is the whatever misquoted sentence that is, that is um, like, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter because actually yeah. it's, it's much easier to, well, it's, it's not easy, but it's comparatively easier to sit down and just, you know, bang out 2000 words about something than it is to then take them and then 
condense them into 1200 words about the same thing, but having cut all the fluff and the jargon and the unnecessary tangents yeah. and, you know, all of that. So it's, it's, I call it simple, but it's, it's really not that simple mm. to do it. And the principle yeah. is just simply to, again, not simply because it's hard, but the principle is to get straight to the point, um, mm. to respect, respect your audience and their time. Do not make them work to, to mm. understand you, um, yeah. you know, communicate in a way that is clear and easy to follow without jargon or if, if jargon is needed, just like explain it, idioms, tangents, all of that. Um, sometimes, you know, we forget that we, we have global audiences. Not everybody understands yeah. in-jokes or <laughs> idiomatic expressions or like I, you know, I'm, I'm not a native speaker myself. Some of the things that I was hearing made no sense to me. And some <laughs> of the things I was hearing also made no sense to me, like don't even get me started, like baseball metaphors and whatever. I, mm, I don't know what you folks metaphors, are talking about, but uh, sports metaphors. So, yeah. You know, um, just don't make your audience work over time to mm. understand what you're trying to, to say. I think yeah. personality is fine. The occasional baseball metaphor is acceptable that they make sense to me <laughs> finally. Um, but yeah, right. just um, I think the point is um, yeah. getting straight to the point and just be helpful. And that sounds much easier than it is in practice to do. That's true. I was thinking a lot about this, like how certain content when I read on LinkedIn, be like, that sounds like it's written, written by ChatGPT because there's a lot of jargon or like ad, like unnecessary adverbs or adjective. And I'm like, like, it just makes it harder to read, would you say? Like when all of the stuff is there where it just, yeah, just get to the point. I think, I think are, it just... I mean, I think it just adds to the cognitive load of of your mm, audience. Like they're they're already trying to learn about a new topic. You don't yeah. need to make it any harder than it already yeah. is. Like, um, mm. I come from an academic background, and that's like the opposite of simple. <laughs> like, you're just straight. I don't know. Read an abstract. You don't even know what what you're reading about. Like, <laughs> as, as as a as an that's average funny. user person. So I, I was very guilty of this because, again, coming right. from academia, I was trained in a kind of writing that does not work well mm. with B2B audiences. So I learned mm. how to simplify things. And then I saw the elegance in simplicity. And now mm. I'm a bit, big advocate for, for that approach mm. as well. Yeah, that makes sense. I forgot who said this. I'm not sure if you agree with it, where like they suggested or I read somewhere that writing for like in in terms of like a lower grade level maybe like high school level like writing so that it's easier to read per se like rather than longer um longer sentences might work better i see this on linkedin a lot where like the way that they i guess make it simple quote unquote is like shorter sentences one line per paragraph where you you know like yeah, a typical uh... thing <laughs> it's a little extreme poetry and uh, <laughs> probably should stay in the realm of poetry i think um i i, I don't know i don't want to be prescriptive like short mm. sentences long sentences you know whatever but um, i think the point is just dumbing it down is the wrong thing to do so finding clarity by whichever way you arrive and if it's one line poetry hey go for it i don't think that that's how it works but you know some audiences might respond really well to it you know who am i to that's say 
different audiences respond well to different things. And if that's the style yours likes, absolutely go for it. I don't think it works when you're writing a listicle comparing software. <laughs> I might be wrong. I'm yeah. willing to be proven wrong if that's the case. That's so funny. I want to talk about the last piece here about yours. I know we've already started chatting about this. Like, how do you, you know, it could be that quotes, like how can marketers make the content sound like it can only come from them or their company or from their own specific voice? Yeah, um, I think there, there are different ways, but I think um, I'll take one step back and I'll explain why I think this is this is important and why it make it, it made it into the framework. I think, uh, as I was saying before, uh, our perception of our work and how the interest with which it will be met um, is is kind of skewed. Like in reality, th the hard truth that we need to face as marketers is that most brands, like all brands, are of low interest to most people most of the time. So like the amount of time we spend caring about a brand <laughs> is not the same amount that people will spend thinking about. Our, they will think about their brand maybe for five minutes if they have a problem. That's, that's pretty much it. So facing this fact can be hard, but it can also turn into a sharper practitioner because mm. once you know that the thing you work on for days will be consumed in minutes and then quickly forgotten, um, you yes. understand that you know the, the urgent need to make your work distinctive enough so that it stands out in a notion of sameness is what I like to say. Like and it. also evokes some sort of emotional response in people who stumble upon your work so that maybe, maybe they might one day remember you in the future. And so with all of this in mind, um, I think what I was trying to say is you should use your unique voice and experience to create this kind of connection with the people you're creating content for and make each piece feel, feel like it could come from you, either you, mm. the individual, or you, the brand. So, and that really depends different things based on you know, your brand voice, whatever guidelines you've got. For example, Postmark um, has a wonderful brand that is known for being helpful and quirky and occasionally weird, and you can, really lean into it and go go wild with that. So we did web comics about um, email oh, deliverability. Cool. They used dogs as a metaphor for email being delivered. Or we wrote a web comic about um, churn, um, you know, the, the, the problem that affects most SaaS companies. And churn in this web comic was was a villainous skunk. And so like we had a you know a personification of that's cool. Like I guarantee right. that no other company yeah, has we, ever talked about you yeah. in the same way. I also guarantee that this approach doesn't work for everybody else. So yeah. if you're like if you're working in, in a heavily regulated industry like health or finance, <laughs> probably do not, you know, do web comics that's about tough. it because it might not be met with the right that's good. <laughs> with the right level yeah. of appreciation. But uh, you know, whatever is your unique yeah. assets or voice or approach um use it to your advantage because you know your uniqueness helps you stand out and helps people remember hopefully um you and your brand and your product etc that's that's such a good idea with the comics like people would remember now exactly you know skunk's journey and like that came from postmark hopefully that connects there 
and it's really about embracing that weirdness, which I find like as companies become more enterprise, they start to lose that that weird. I'm not sure. I've, I've just seen uh, Margaret Kelsey, who I had on the show here, I used to work at AppUse and now OpenView now our own thing. She called it companies start embracing the enterprise blue or <laughs> like they, all these Android companies become more blue where they all start looking the same. And I think that's a challenge. I can see that. I can see that. And I think I can see an argument for why it happens. Like I've, I've been at companies where this happens after a certain scale, uh, you know, you got a lot to lose more so than you maybe had before when you could go wild with your with your drawings. Like, you know, we're talking about thousands of people, millions in revenue and stuff like that. And people maybe tend to be a bit more conservative. Um, but at the same time, I think there are still other ways. Like you don't have, as I said, you don't have to be weird <laughs> with your brand. Like there are other ways to make things yours at any scale mm. and it any in any industry mm. so but i was particularly lucky to be honest that hotjar and postmark had a very similar um vision of the world where they were not concerned about coming across as Weird. gently controversial <laughs> they were not just doing it for the sake of it but they yeah. were opinionated right. they had strong opinions yeah. and strong beliefs and they liked to and they liked to share them mm. and uh bring more people into that kind of worldview yeah yeah, I was lucky that I could mm. I could do that really. Yeah, that's true. And it's really those strong opinions is what like that that what could be yours. Like that that opinion that you have, it is maybe other people have said it, but like you've when you publish that, that's an opinion that you that you know somebody from the company or a person has that you know it's hard. We talked about this before being hard to copy. And that's what exactly what you're talking about here, essentially. And it also goes back to even talking to your customer because mm. that's also yours in a different way but other people's experience with your product are also unique to you and they're you know the way they use it and the way they use it to solve their problems or do their jobs and if they tell you about it that's again uniquely yours so you don't even need to you know you don't even need to create a new format you don't need to do web comics you can just add you know, Good. somebody's experience yeah. or you can be on a call with somebody and cut a clip of like two minutes in which they tell you how they use the product or whatever. You can add it to your pages, to your blog post, etc. That's still yours. And over the course of many iterations of this, you, you start building a library of it. So, you know, if people do continue to use your content, they will keep seeing this recurring element mm -hmm. of customers being interviewed, customers talking, and they were thinking, oh, well, you know, this is the brand where the customers are always giving their opinion, or, you know, yeah. this is the brand that shows you how things are done. That's, that's it, really. It, it doesn't need to be any more complex than this, to be honest. It's, this is a, it's very easy for everybody to mm. do, I think. And I'm kind of surprised not everybody's <laughs> doing it already, because, you know, it seems like an easy-ish right. solution. <laughs> Maybe the challenge is, especially like, you know, the idea of more content means higher organic ranking is the challenge here where adding those customer interviews is hard, like, quote unquote, harder to scale than creating more and more content. So it's it's often the hard stuff that makes you, you essentially, like makes your content more unique than trying to, I guess, like produce more content, what you say? 
because otherwise everybody else can do it and they probably are. Mm. So Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you for sharing this framework. I actually want to shift gears and talk about uh, Career Power Up. Now you've been, I, we already talked about your experience. You've worked at uh, you know, Hotjar and Postscript and you have this over decade of experience uh, in content and marketing and brand uh, editorial. I'm curious, is there something that a career power up does help you accelerate your career? It could be something soft, like, you know, making friends with other marketers or something more specific, a marketing skill that we've already talked about on our IQ. It could be a couple or, or however I, many you want. I think you got that exactly right already. I think I have, I have a must have and a nice to have, and okay. the must have was having a network of marketing friends. And the nice to have was starting my own side mm. project as a newsletter. Um, and I'll tell you why the network was such a must have. So I joined Hotjar um, at the 30 person stage and it was a wonderful time of growth. The company was um, self-funded, profitable, had found product market fit. So it was kind of like, you know, this rocket ship uh, that was being built as, as we were all there. And it was super exciting. And I got to meet a lot of people. And I was so immersed into the life of Hotjar that I forgot to look outside of Hotjar. Mm. So all my conversations at Hotjar were with my content partner. And they were about, so all my conversations about content were with my content partner. And they were about content at Hotjar. They were not about content per se, but they were very specific to the place we were and the thing we were trying to build. And so... The week after leaving Hodger was very quiet and very silent because suddenly I had nobody to talk shop with. And I realized that I hadn't been as intentional at building connections with peers and mentors um, as I had been in building connections with other folks at Hodger, which was great in its own way because it really like building bridges across functions and departments really helps you understand how a company grows and how a company is built and how you all work together. But I, I, you know, I didn't have a counterpart in, in other marketers who could teach me how they'd built their thing and what problems they'd encountered or what experiments they'd run, et cetera. So I realized I needed a solution very quickly and I needed a network. And so I started by asking um, for a couple of intros and then, you know, getting virtual coffees with, with people. Um, it was, I should say, the height of the pandemic, so we were all at home anyway, <laughs> so there were a lot of calls going on back then in 2020. But the other thing I did was I started my passion project, my mm. newsletter, Content Folks, um, because also a lot of the learning and you know the things I'd mastered in my journey at Hotjar were either staying there or, or just coming with me, but they hadn't really been seen by anybody mm. else. And I thought it was... It was kind of a waste of a lot of learning because surely some people, you know, could could read and compare to their experience and maybe learn something or teach me something just by virtue of me saying something publicly. And so in addition to, uh, you know, getting interest to other people, I also started saying yes to people who came my way after reading my newsletter and, you know, wanted to talk about content, which I'm obviously very happy to do. And then I started being invited to podcasts and, you know, now here I am <laughs> with you today. Um, but yeah, but that was not something I, I had at mm -hmm. all while I was at Hodger. So that's, 
a mistake I made, and I think if anybody is listening to it and recognize themselves in my words, in my words, just like take action mm. now, like just go and build a couple of content friendships outside of your company mm. bubble, because um, that will also mean that you have a good network, and when opportunities pop up, people might think of mm. you, or you know, might put you in touch with somebody who has opportunities. So the last two jobs I got were not because I applied for a job. It's because somebody in my network had a need and also the understanding that I was probably the right mm. person to help them do whatever it is that they wanted to do. So yeah, that's uh, the story. But I also wanted to say that the network is a must have, but the newsletter was a nice to have because I understand not everybody has the yeah. time, <laughs> you know, the, the, the mental energy or the desire yeah. to, to have a side project. And they shouldn't. Like I'm very, I'm very lucky that during the pandemic, I did not have kids, so I was just at home in, in my own four walls and being like, well, I guess I'll just start a newsletter now. <laughs> you know, what do I do? I like it. But not everybody mm -hmm. can, and absolutely not everybody should. But the network, yes, because everybody can do that in whichever format works. If it's uh, calls in person, if you want to have, you know, a Slack community, if you want to chat with people in writing, whatever, just reach out to someone. And share expertise and experiences with them. I love how you called out like how it's helped you. You know, your past two roles have been through your network, and I think that's a real advantage to that. Especially when you know a lot of stuff happening in tech right now with the layoffs, building that network, you can really like I guess almost like have a safety net almost like that can help you. Like people who want to root for you and like open doors for you essentially is what what uh, the potential. I guess, advantages of having, I call it friends, <laughs> friends and content, you know, who, who like uh, love yes. you, love what you do <laughs> and would be willing to help you out. And likewise, I think that's a really cool thing you, you mentioned. Yeah. And, and the likewise element is important because you can do the same for them as well. So you can also connect people, you know, with a skill to people with a need for that skill, like building bridges across, you know, the world of, the big wild world of content marketing is uh, is very That's important. Funny. Do you have any advice for people on how to reach out? One, if for example, one of the ways that I've done it would be like, let's we're both content. We're both in content. We'd just love to talk about content and talk about life and shop. I'm not sure. Like, was what was your approach to reaching out to a couple of folks? Was it you, did you get introduced to them? Because I know that's a challenge for people who's never made friends <laughs> in their network before? Yeah, I, I actually went the way of introductions mm, um, first. So I I had I had a good friend who was a good connector. So I asked them to put me in touch with a couple of people. And then from then on, like everybody gets asked to put me in touch with somebody else. So all you need is just like one yeah. person. And I'm sure that, you know, the vast majority of people probably have one person. It doesn't even need to be a content person, by the way. It can be just anyone as long as they know a content person that they can connect to you. So um, that's that's one way. I think, you know, if you follow somebody, um, if somebody's writing a newsletter or something, if you engage with them a little bit regularly, maybe after a while you can also ask them to, you know, be on a call. Just I, I, I wouldn't out of the blue pop up in somebody's uh, email and be like, hey, let's chat because, right. you know. That's true. Well, but maybe some people respond <laughs> well to that. I don't know. I, as, as I said, you know, you do you. Um, just being respectful of people's yeah. time and being courteous yeah. and 
kind, mm. it goes a really long way. That's a that's such a good point. I think the goal of this is like to I keep saying make friends, but like during those calls, I have <laughs> been like reached out to, and it it ended up turning into like um interrogation, <laughs> where I feel like I'm being interrogated. I'm guessing your approach was different when you got on those calls. It was what was what was the conversation? How did it flow essentially? Because I think this is a important lesson well, for people who have never done this. They approach it like, "What do you do?" and then it's just like fifty questions at that person, and rather than a conversation. No, so there were there were a couple of things because I had a newsletter. I would usually have conversations that I might end mm. up using in my newsletter so early on i had a couple of conversations where i asked practitioners very tactical questions like how did you do x how did this work and then i wrote stories like i wrote little stories of how they did that um in some other cases i was just like you know i'd I'd left my work at hajar and i was a bit lost about what to do next so i sought out people who could probably be more like less peers and maybe mentors and i was like hey I'm a bit lost mm. right now, and I know that you have got so much experience. Do you have like two pointers to give me, like, or just one thing? Like, what can I do? What should I do? What do you recommend? And it could be anything, really. And some people, you know, I did that in Slack. Some people sent me one line. Some people sent me like a wall <laughs> of text of recommendations. Other people were like, "Yeah, just let's have a let's have That's a fifteen cool. minute call." Yeah. You know, I think. The format will yeah. vary, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's yeah. that's how it works for me. I think I, I love how you approach that, I, I being vulnerable and asking for help. Like people in general want to help other people, especially if you're in the same like industry or like same like or content folks. Like if any content folks reaches reached out to me, like I know in Superpath, uh, this uh, network for for content marketers, a few people have reached out to ask for advice and. In general, people want to help. <laughs> you know, I think people forget yes. that that if you ask for help, usually they you mentioned they can give you a short note, or if they have more time, they can give you a wall of text, or even if they want, um, they can jump on a call to help you out with that. Yeah, and Superpath, as you mentioned, is a very good place for that. So that's actually where I built some of my good connections. There are people that I've never talked to, like you know, face to face, but I've been exchanging Slack messages cool. with for a while, and uh, yeah, that's. That's that's network as well. It's not just, you know, being on a call with somebody. It's just uh, just having the conversation in whichever format or medium or place. I, I don't think it matters that much. If you enjoyed this episode, you'd love the Marketing Power-Ups newsletter. I share the actionable takeaways and break down the frameworks of world-class marketers. Go to marketingpowerups.com to subscribe and you'll instantly unlock the three best frameworks that top marketers use hit their KPIs consistently, and wow, their colleagues. I want to say thank you to you for listening, and please like and follow Marketing Power-Ups on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. If you feel extra generous, can you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify? Leave a comment on YouTube. It goes a long way in others finding out about Marketing Power-Ups. Thanks to Mary Sullivan for creating the artwork and design, and thank you to Faisal Kaigo for editing the intro video. And of course, thank you for listening. That's all for now. Have a powered update. Marketing power-ups. Until the next episode.